Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and torture that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was fall of 1983 in Bogota, the capital city of Colombia. A finely dressed judge rode in the back seat of a dusty sedan. He gazed out the window, mentally reviewing the cases on his docket while his driver navigated the heavy city traffic. Suddenly, a motorcycle slipped between the lanes of gridlocked vehicles and stopped right next to the judge's window. There were two people on the motorcycle, their faces obscured behind tented helmets. The passenger lifted an AK-47 and sprayed bullets into the back seat. The assassins sped away, leaving the judge rapidly bleeding to death in the back seat. His execution had been ordered by El Patron, cocaine kingpin Pablo Escobar. The judge earned his death sentence by issuing a warrant for Pablo's arrest. His assassination marked the beginning of a new era for Pablo and for Colombia. Over the next 10 years, hundreds of people, by some estimates even thousands, would die for defying Pablo Escobar. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is the third episode in our four-part series on Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar. Last week, we witnessed Pablo's fall from multi-millionaire Colombian congressman to political pariah when his criminal history was exposed. This week, Pablo lets his facade of legitimacy drop away and takes control with the only weapons he knows best, coercion, bribery, and violence. Pablo was 32 years old in March 1982 when he won a seat in the Colombian Congress. He was raking in millions of dollars every week from his cocaine empire and his congressional seat granted immunity from prosecution for his illegal drug trade, including protection from extradition to the United States. He was on top of the world. But everything unraveled when Pablo was exposed as a drug trafficker by his political rival, Minister of Justice Rodrigo Lara. 
In August 1983, Laura supported the national newspaper El Espectador when they published a damning article about Pablo's arrest for trafficking back in 1976. The article destroyed Pablo's political career and spawned new warrants for his arrest. As Pablo's political future imploded, Laura called for Congress to strip Pablo's congressional immunity. Even a former ally of Pablo's, Senator Alberto Santofimio, issued a public statement asking Pablo to quit politics and face the charges against him. El Tiempo, the biggest national Colombian newspaper, contextualized the gravity of Pablo's political position by asking, how is democracy going to continue in Colombia if it is managed and manipulated by criminals? But even in the face of national pressure, Pablo refused to vacate his seat and give up his congressional immunity. Pablo's fall was still swift. Less than a month after his first congressional appearance, Pablo was public enemy number one in Colombia. His life and livelihood were in danger like they'd never been before, and not just from the Colombian authorities. Colombia had signed an extradition treaty with the United States in 1979. It was designed to allow the U.S. to prosecute and imprison the Colombian drug traffickers, or narcos, responsible for the nonstop flow of cocaine and other drugs into the country. But Colombian President Belisario Betancur was reluctant to act on the treaty. He, along with many officials, didn't want another country imposing their laws in Colombia. So instead of signing extradition orders, President Betancourt chose to filibuster. He tasked the Supreme Court with analyzing the legality of the extradition treaty. While they deliberated, extradition remained in limbo. Pablo's nemesis, Minister of Justice Rodrigo Lara, was ready to push that issue. He told the press, the more I learn, the more I know of the damage that the narcos are causing the country. I will never again refuse the extradition of one of these dogs. After Lara exposed Pablo's trafficking activities and demonstrated how Pablo's drug profits allowed him to buy his way out of jail, public support for extradition increased. And in October 1983, the Colombian Supreme Court ruled extradition legal. Extradition warrants were issued for several Colombian cocaine and marijuana traffickers, including some members of the Medellin cartel and Pablo himself. Pablo flexed back with his own lawyers. By February 1984, he managed to get his extradition warrant withdrawn, but it did little to ease his mind. For the first time in his life, Pablo was running scared. The possibility of a lifetime inside a U.S. jail cell became more real with each passing day. Many people remember him declaring, I would rather have a grave in Colombia than a jail cell in the United States. Pablo wasn't going down without a fight, but Laura was up to the challenge. Into the spring of 1984, the two men matched strike for strike. Pablo ordered the assassinations of the investigation's leaders, like the judge who issued his arrest warrant. Laura approved DEA-sponsored testing of new herbicides on coca fields, destroying the plants and disrupting Pablo's pipeline. Pablo had his hitmen issue death threats to Laura's family over the phone. 
Laura published more news stories about Pablo's history of stealing cars. But in March 1984, Laura and his partners in the DEA got a big break. And they used it to hit Pablo where it would hurt most, his business. In the southeast corner of the remote Colombian jungle, near the Peruvian border, was a vast compound hidden beneath the lush green canopy. The nearest road was over 250 miles away. The impressive group of structures was called Tranquilandia. The name roughly translates to quiet land. Many people, both in the cocaine trade and in law enforcement, had heard something about Tranquilandia. It was a legend for its vastness, its impressive manufacturing volume, its significance as a symbol of narco cooperation. But almost no one knew where to find it in the thousands of miles of untamed jungle. Tranquilandia was one of the largest cocaine labs in Colombia. It was officially owned by Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gacha, a member of the Medellin cartel, but all the members contributed to upkeep. In just two years, Tranquilandia had produced over $12 billion worth of cocaine. The enormous complex functioned more like a small city than a lab. Among the numerous facilities, there was a school, living, bathing, and dining facilities for several hundred workers, and of course, eight busy airstrips. Planes were constantly landing with the raw materials needed to make cocaine, including coca paste, ether, and other chemicals. The same planes would take off with loads of white powder cocaine bound for larger airports, other labs for further synthesis, or Caribbean islands. In March 1984, a crucial shipment of ether arrived from the lab's supplier in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Workers unloaded 95 heavy metal drums off the plane, rolling them directly into the lab. They didn't know that inside two of the drums, tiny transponders relayed their location all the way back to the DEA. The secret location of Tranquilandia had finally been revealed. The DEA had been cunning to use ether as their entree. In 1984, there were only seven companies in the world producing ether. Each of those companies was targeted with wiretaps and undercover agents until the cartel's supplier was revealed. Once the guilty company was facing criminal charges, they were more than happy to slip a few transponders into their product. A few days later, on March 10th, 1984, several helicopters descended on Tranquilandia. Heavily armed officers from the Colombian National Police leapt from the helicopters before they'd even landed. One of the helicopters remained airborne, spraying Tranquilandia with machine gun fire. On the ground, it was chaos. Some of the workers quickly submitted to arrest. Others fled directly into the thick jungle. Once the invading officers realized that Tranquilandia offered little by way of security, they put down their guns and picked up cameras. The DEA and Colombian authorities wanted evidence that could be used in court to sentence drug traffickers like Pablo to life in prison or even death. They photographed and videotaped state-of-the-art facilities and airplane hangars right alongside the primitive living conditions of the overworked employees. 
The workers were arrested and sent back to Bogota for processing. The DEA and Colombian officials collected all the paperwork they could find. Everything left behind was burned. The entire compound smoldered. The belongings of hundreds of workers, one-of-a-kind specially designed chemical equipment, several airplanes, 12,000 drums of chemicals. And over 15 tons of cocaine, worth approximately $1.2 billion. It was the largest cocaine seizure ever completed. The bust affected the world supply so severely that up in Miami, addicts had to spend a little more to get their coke fix. After the destruction of Tranquilandia, the Medellin cartel didn't waste any more time in striking back. They put out a hit on Rodrigo Lara, offering $500,000 for his murder. The barrios of Medellin were full of young men who hungered to work for El Patron. When most of the work available was hard labor that paid about a dollar per week, an assassination like Lara's looked like the doorway to a new life. Not only was the work profitable, but there was honor in working for El Patron. Now that Pablo was openly battling with two hostile governments, the United States and Colombia, his legend as the hero of the underdogs was stronger than ever. Pablo had no problem finding someone to fulfill his order for another high-profile motorcycle murder. That method of assassination had become so common, it had its own name, parillero, which roughly translates to barbecue. On April 29, 1984, two young men on a motorcycle stopped in front of a shrine to Santa Maria Auxiliadora near Medellin. They both said a prayer for luck. One tucked a prayer card of the Virgin Mary into his underwear. The other tucked a Mac-10 into his jacket. At 7 p.m., they climbed onto a Yamaha motorbike and sped off. They drove the 418 kilometers to Bogota overnight, then spent the next day searching the city for Lara. In the afternoon, they heard Lara was traveling in a white Mercedes-Benz limousine. That evening, the Sicario sped through the streets of Bogota. Up ahead in traffic, they finally saw it, a gleaming white limo. The windows were heavily tinted, but they knew who was inside. Lara sat in the air-conditioned back seat. There had been so many threats on his life, the U.S. State Department had supplied him with a bulletproof vest. But it sat beside him on the seat. He knew if Pablo's Sicarios came for him, it wouldn't do him any good. He was right. Lara was shot seven times. He died instantly. That night, Colombian President Betancourt stayed up until three in the morning strategizing with his cabinet. The public assassination of the Minister of Justice made Colombia look lawless. Right now, Pablo Escobar held more power in the public eye than the president, and that would not be tolerated. President Betancourt got on the radio for an emergency broadcast. He identified drugs as the most serious problem Colombia has had in its history. Moving forward, President Betancourt would speed up extraditions to the United States. Pablo's government was no longer protecting him. 
Up next, Pablo Escobar goes to war with the Colombian government. Now, back to the story. In April of 1984, 34-year-old Pablo Escobar ordered the assassination of his nemesis, Minister of Justice Rodrigo Lara. Lara's murder left the government of Colombia no choice. If they wanted to maintain law and order, they had to eliminate the man who so openly defied their authority, El Patron, Pablo Escobar. Now, not only was the Colombian government hell-bent on taking down traffickers, but the United States finally had the authority to prosecute and imprison the Colombian narcos funneling drugs north. And Pablo was on top of their hit list. Pablo was now being pursued by his own government, U.S. Customs, the DEA, the Coast Guard, federal police, state police, and the United States military. But he wasn't going to take a hit to his freedom and business lying down. He knew that the Colombian justice system was susceptible to corruption. If he had all the judges in his pocket, none of them would be willing to serve indictments against him or his close allies. So Pablo began a systematic attack, approaching every bureaucrat he could reach with the same message, plata o plomo. In the summer of 1984, the judge who indicted Pablo for Lara's murder was leaving his courthouse. A well-dressed man approached him. He offered the judge a bribe to dismiss Pablo's charges. The judge was told, ask for whatever you want, and they'll put it wherever you want it, in Colombia or outside the country. Then you can relax. Neither your life nor the lives of your family members will be in danger. The subtext was clear. Take the money and cooperate, or you're dead. But the judge didn't bite. He refused the bribe, the plata. That meant he would be getting plomo, lead. A few days later, five men opened fire on that same judge as he was entering a taxi. He was just one of many. Some judges were presented with photographs of their children or wives during their daily routine. Some received death threats in the mail. Many were murdered. Then, Pablo's reign of terror expanded from law enforcement to informants to American citizens. Journalist Mark Bowden writes, Pablo's policy of Plata o Plomo became so notoriously effective that it would ultimately threaten to undermine Colombia's democracy. When President Betancourt picked up his private telephone, he often heard a low, gravelly voice telling him he was going to die. The sounds of motorcycle engines became sources of sudden fear. Innocent riders stopped wearing helmets to show that they weren't an assassin trying to hide their face. In the fall of 1984, an empty car rolled toward the U.S. Embassy in the middle of the afternoon. It hit a curb and exploded. Blocks away, windows rattled and buildings shook. Flames shot 300 feet into the air. Six people were injured and one person was killed. After the car bomb, embassy staff was stripped down to a skeleton crew. Their children traveled to school in a caravan of jeeps mounted with machine guns. Diplomats moved around the country in armored vehicles. 
Pablo contracted a team of hitmen to kidnap key DEA agents running the investigation against him. Soon after that, the DEA shut down their office in Medellin. Colombians working with the DEA were punished in the brutal tradition of La Violencia. One informant's body was found with pins sticking out from under each of his fingernails and a bullet hole in his head. A sign on his neck read, killed for being a DEA informant. While Colombia existed in a state of terror, Pablo and his family were hiding out in a borrowed mansion in Panama next to a golf resort. They were the guests of Panama's dictator, General Manuel Noriega. Pablo slept in late and played soccer on the golf course in the afternoons. He still ran his business from the luxury of his mansion. By the end of 1984, it looked like Pablo had the upper hand. But then, General Noriega's hospitality ran out. Pablo got word that Noriega was in talks with the United States government and using Pablo's surrender as a bargaining chip. The honeymoon was over. At the beginning of 1985, Pablo returned to Colombia. Even though his enemies were there, so were his most trusted allies. It was where he felt most in control and most at home. Pablo was far from giving up. In many ways, returning to his home country demonstrated a renewed dedication to the fight. His mindset is well summed up by journalist Mark Bowden. Pablo saw his fate and Colombia's as the same. And as notorious as he became, he never stopped being a patriot. Upon his homecoming, Pablo reached out to federal officials with an offer. He would dismantle his trafficking organization and turn over the bulk of his money to help pay down the national debt, which at the time was probably around $10 billion. He would even consider a brief prison sentence, but only in Colombia. We should note here that there's a lot of back and forth on whether Pablo actually did offer to pay off the national debt. However, the fact that many believed he made this offer and that he could afford to back it up is telling enough of the kind of reputation Pablo enjoyed at the time. Pablo was living freely in Medellin, attending bullfights and throwing a massive christening party for his daughter Manuela, who was born in Panama on May 25, 1984. He still traveled with an entourage of armed bodyguards, though of course, anyone who stood up to him was a dead man walking. Pablo was flexing. The message to Colombian authorities was clear. Take my deal or come and get me. Go ahead, try it. The Colombian government declined Pablo's offer in the fall of 1985. It was extradition or nothing. Pablo dug in his heels. Time to take this war up a notch. In September of 1985, Pablo called another meeting of all the Medellin cartel leaders. The tone was a little different than the last time he summoned them together after Martha Ochoa's kidnapping in 1981. Instead of gathering everyone at his luxurious estate, Hacienda Napoles, this time the group assembled on a rural farm called The Circle. No amenities, just business. 
Pablo limited attendance to just the VIPs. No small-time smugglers. He only wanted people he knew he could trust. People who had as much to lose as he did. Even so, the atmosphere was understandably tense. For the 70 cartel members at the meeting, there were over 200 bodyguards who came with all the toys, meaning guns. Lots of guns. But even with everyone on edge, Pablo still commanded respect. When he stood up to speak, the crowd went silent. Pablo had brought them together to discuss an issue that affected them all, extradition. By September 1985, the United States had successfully extradited six traffickers and nine others were being held in Colombian jails awaiting transport. The same fate awaited any one of them. Although he was defending his own freedom, he also couldn't stand that another country was imposing its laws on Colombia. It made Colombia look weak, and it made the United States into some kind of moral savior. He fired up the crowd, and they all adopted his own mantra, better a grave in Colombia than a jail cell in the United States. Pablo proposed a blood pact. Everyone pledged to commit suicide before allowing themselves to be captured by Americans. They agreed on a preferred method, a gunshot right behind the ear, where the skull couldn't accidentally stop the bullet. The group called themselves the Extraditables. Many of the leaders pledged money and their own Sicarios toward the cause. Once again, Pablo had created his own army. That night, after all his guests left, Pablo relaxed at the circle with his brother, Roberto. Pablo was feeling secure and powerful, invincible even. As he told Roberto about his plans for the extraditables, he drank coffee and ate cake. Pablo and Roberto startled at the sound of someone at the door. It was after midnight. There was no reason for anyone to be on the property. A bodyguard reported that there was a beautiful, well-dressed woman at the door. She'd arrived in a Mercedes and claimed she was there to deliver flowers to a Dr. Hernandez. Roberto went to the door. He told the gorgeous woman that she had the wrong address. There was no Dr. Hernandez here. She apologized and drove off in her pristine Mercedes. Roberto was rattled. No one delivered flowers after midnight, especially not in a Mercedes. But he shrugged it off. The brothers continued talking and eating for a few hours until a terrible sound made them freeze. Gunshots. Pablo and Roberto didn't wait to find out who was firing. They just ran blindly into the pitch black wilderness behind the circle. The shots continued. One of the bullets grazed Roberto. Some of the bodyguards and farm workers took off too, running barefoot in their pajamas or underwear. Even as the gunfire faded behind them, many people kept running. But Pablo slowed to a walk, telling them, you guys are going to kill yourselves running where you can't see. Pablo could always be depended upon to keep a cool head. A few minutes after they were done dodging bullets, he could get everyone laughing. After walking all night, the group came upon another of Pablo's bodyguards who had managed to escape by car. 
They were safe for now. Two weeks later, Pablo found out what ignited the raid on the circle. A member of the rival Cali cartel had been present during the gathering. The Cali cartel member had alerted the government to Pablo's position, hoping to secure their own immunity from extradition by giving up Pablo. Pablo's sense of security was shattered. In a group of men he thought were friends, all it took was one traitor to almost ruin him. The rest of his life would be spent in a state of high paranoia, but even that couldn't save him. Up next, Pablo ratchets up the violence. If he can't be safe, no one can. Now, back to the story. Pablo Escobar was at a new low in September of 1985. He had been run off his own farm in the middle of the night, escaping by the skin of his teeth. The Colombian government had refused his offer to turn himself in. It was time for the extraditables to show their teeth. Although the Colombian Supreme Court had ruled extradition legal in October 1983, the issue was being brought before the Supreme Court again in the fall of 1985. If the court ruled against it, the United States would have to cease extradition. Pablo set the extraditables to the task of swinging the judges' opinions. The judges all received threatening letters. We declare war against you. We declare war against the members of your family. As you may have supposed, we know exactly where they are. We will do away with your entire family. We have no compassion whatsoever. We are capable of anything, absolutely everything. One judge with a heart condition received a tiny coffin personalized with his name. When another judge's daughter was about to undergo an operation, the hospital phone rang. The throaty voice on the other end said, we know where she is. The pressure increased every day, but despite the threats, the justices remained steadfast. All the intel coming out of the court was that the judges planned to uphold the treaty. Extraordinary measures were called for. On November 6, 1985, the 24 Supreme Court justices assembled in the Protocol Salon of the National Palace. The Colombian National Anthem was playing to signal the start of judicial proceedings. In just a few minutes, they would rule on extradition. Suddenly, the courtroom doors opened and guerrillas dressed in green army fatigues stormed in. They were armed to the teeth with machine guns, rifles, and grenades. Civilians in the gallery rushed down to the floor, pulling guns from under their clothes. In fact, they weren't civilians. They were guerrillas in disguise. They'd snuck into the building the day before and slept there overnight to be optimally placed for the occupation in the morning. Pablo had enlisted the help of M-19, the same guerrilla group that kidnapped Martha Ochoa back in 1981. He had built up a good relationship with M-19 after that affair had been completed. Now, working under contract for Pablo, 
M-19 took 300 Supreme Court judges, lawyers, and staff hostage. The security guards were already dead. The guerrillas blocked all of the exits with furniture and mounted their machine guns on top of the piles. They made demands ranging from the predictable to the absurd. They demanded the prohibition of extradition and in the next breath wanted President Betancourt prosecuted for reneging on his promise to achieve peace. Colombian police and military responded to the hostage situation. Hundreds of troops arrived in tanks and helicopters with grenade launchers, rocket launchers, and snipers. The military launched rockets into the historic judicial building, blasting holes into the walls. Helicopters dropped troops onto the roof, only to be hit with guerrilla sniper fire through the skylights. The fighting was fierce, but police were ultimately pushed back. The day ended with the guerrillas in control of the building. The entire nation, including Pablo, watched the situation live on television. He was waiting for one thing, fire. Although Pablo hoped the occupation of the building would change the ruling on extradition, his primary goal was actually much more simple, the destruction of the evidence supporting his own personal extradition. If the records were destroyed, he couldn't be extradited. By the second day of the siege, all attempts at hostage negotiation had failed. At one point, there was a working phone line, but all the gunfire and explosions made communication impossible. At 7 p.m. on November 6, 1985, smoke started to billow out from the upper levels of the building. Watching at home, Pablo made a rare show of emotion. He smiled. The records that could put him in prison in the United States were burning. Of course, so was a building full of exhausted, hysterical hostages and guerrillas. Everyone crammed into a bathroom on the first floor to shelter from the flames. The next morning, President Betancourt still refused to negotiate. Instead, he authorized a full military assault on the hostage takers. A tank smashed through a wall of the building, finally allowing the troops access to the inside. The guerrillas used live hostages as human shields as they tried to escape. Soon, the building was overrun by the military. The siege was over. All told, over a hundred people died, and about a dozen were missing and never found. Eleven Supreme Court justices were among the dead. The surviving judges criticized President Betancourt's lack of effort to negotiate, and the final ruling on extradition was delayed indefinitely. Pablo's reign of terror had had the desired effect. Yet again, Pablo maintained the upper hand with pure violence. Throughout 1986, he used the same Plata o Plomo tactics to keep the justice system in line. The murder of rebellious journalists, lawyers, and judges were reported daily. Guillermo Cano Isaza wrote in the national newspaper El Espectador, It seems we have decided to live with crime and declare ourselves defeated. The drug cartel has taken over Colombia. During 1986, 
Pablo kept living it up in Medellin with his family. He went out to clubs and hosted parties at his multiple residences, always surrounded by a tight group of bodyguards. Pablo owned about 20 taxis in Medellin, which he used for transportation. Since all the vehicles were identical, it was difficult to track Pablo's movements around the city. Although the DEA was busting more drug shipments during 1986 than they ever had before, they were barely making a dent in Pablo's business. For every shipment the DEA intercepted, there were five more that went through. At this point, he was smuggling about $20 million worth of cocaine in each shipment. But the government dealt Pablo a severe blow on November 17, 1986, about two weeks before his 37th birthday. They went public with an indictment of all the leaders of the Medellin cartel, including Pablo. Newspapers all over Colombia covered the indictment, including El Espectador. The paper's director, Guillermo Cano Isaza, had remained an outspoken critic of the cartel. On December 17, 1986, Cano left the offices of El Espectador after working late. In the back seat of his station wagon were Christmas presents he'd bought for his family on his lunch break. He was waiting to make a left turn when he heard the sound that had become a death sentence in Colombia. Cano's blood sprayed all over his family's Christmas presents. Anyone might expect this much death to wear down the people of Colombia into a numb state of inaction. But something was changing in the beginning of 1987. More and more people were beginning to openly speak against the cartels. Thousands attended the slain journalist's funeral. The day after his death, the newspaper ran the headline, Seguimos Adelante. We go on. Although Pablo and Colombian and U.S. authorities continued to strike at each other tit for tat, a groundswell of public opposition to the cartel made the fight feel different. It finally looked like the tides might be turning against the narcos. On February 4, 1987, Medellin cartel leader Carlos Lader was arrested near Rio Negro, Colombia. Some sources say that Pablo gave up later in order to curry favor with authorities. Whether that's true or not, the arrest did not look good for Pablo. Either he was getting desperate enough to turn on his own allies, or one of his closest peers had been apprehended. There was a respite on June 25, 1987. The Colombian Supreme Court ruled that extradition law had been ratified unconstitutionally. It was a win on a technicality, but it was a win. Extradition was finally off the table. About a month later, on July 22, 1987, things got even better for Pablo. Due to lack of evidence and improperly obtained evidence, his indictments for the murders of journalist Guillermo Cano Isaza and Justice Minister Rodrigo Lara were withdrawn. Pablo's only outstanding arrest warrants were for crimes dating back to the 1970s, and all the pertinent witnesses had been killed. For the first time in four years, it really looked like he was going to be off the hook. 
But even though his legal troubles were fading away, Pablo had lost something he always thought he could depend on, the love of the common people. In November 1987, Sicarios crept through an upscale Medellin neighborhood. They surrounded the home of Juan Gomez Martinez, the Conservative Party candidate for mayor. On Pablo's orders, they were there to take Martinez hostage, to use as leverage in his negotiations with the government. But when Martinez's neighbors realized what was happening, they fired back and killed one of the Sicarios. Not only had Pablo's mission failed, but it had been foiled by the people Pablo claimed he was serving. On New Year's Eve 1987, Pablo should have been celebrating his victories. He was welcoming the new year free from legal trouble for the first time in his adult life. But he couldn't enjoy the celebration. He'd always believed he was fighting for the people of Colombia. That gave him purpose, power, and authority. But now, his nation's love for him seemed to be draining away. It felt like the very ground beneath him was shifting. It would continue to shift. Less than two weeks later, on January 12, 1988, Pablo kissed his wife goodnight. He was leaving her and their two children, three-year-old Manuela and 11-year-old Juan Pablo, to sleep in a steel-reinforced multi-story complex called Monaco. Pablo referred to Monaco as his castle. He had designed the residence for safety and comfort and filled it with his most priceless treasures. Tonight, that was especially true, as Pablo left his family there and headed to a farm 10 miles into the country. At 5.30 a.m. the following morning, a bomb exploded at Monaco. Two miles away, people shot awake in their beds at the sound of the blast. Every building on the block had its windows shattered. The water main was torn up and spurting onto the street. Where Monaco once stood, there was now an enormous 13-foot-deep crater. Two night watchmen were dead. Somewhere among the destruction was Pablo's family. The warfare had escalated to deadlier weapons, bombs. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week for the violent conclusion to Pablo Escobar's fight for freedom. Will his family be a collateral damage? You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Kingpins is written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>